0: Take, and I am your host. Welcome back. On this episode, we brought you guys another legend. We brought you guys the captain of the 1980 USA Olympic hockey team, Mike Ruzzioni. I didn't fucking stutter. That's what we interviewed for this episode. For those of you guys who were alive at that time, we interviewed the guy who scored the game-winning goal against the Russians, resulting in the biggest upset in sports history. For those of you who weren't, he's the guy in the movie Miracle, where in that epic scene goes, I play for the United States of America. He's that guy. And we were insanely humbled to be able to interview him, man. I, I, I can't stress that enough. It was it was it was insane, man. I mean, when you're a kid and you're watching all these sports movies and you get to idolize these people and then all of a sudden they're in front of your computer. It's, it's just a it's a fucking surreal moment. And, you know, I don't take it for granted. So I don't want to talk about the interview because I want you guys just to listen. And, uh, man, it was great. Uh, Mike does have a book of the whole recalling of the events. It's called The Making of a Miracle. And you can get it on Amazon. You can get it anywhere you want. And uh, he does have social media handles and all that stuff. So I will be saying that stuff at the end of the episode. But in the meantime, I want you guys to appreciate the great wisdom that comes from Mr. Ruzioni. So without further ado, I bring to you the captain of the 1980 USA Olympic hockey team, Mike Ruzioni. So would you, would you be a Kings fan? Uh, you know what, sir? I'm uh I live right next to the Ducks, but uh oh, okay. I'm actually I'm actually a Rangers fan. <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> a Rangers fan. Yeah. We uh it's funny. We we picked um we picked uh, teams about like 10 years ago, I would say me and my we had family. We, were, we weren't too big into hockey, and then we're like, you know what? We got to get really big into hockey, and we got to pick teams. And you can't change your team ever. So that's basically how it came came down to. So it was, okay. it's Rangers. I was incredible.
1: in Madison Square Garden last week for the uh, fire and police game.
0: Oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah, that's is that for uh, NYPD and and then and the fire department yeah. as well?
1: Yeah, they play against each other. They, the garden was almost sold out. It's a pretty good Holy crowd. God.
0: Holy crap, that's insane. They get
1: pretty competitive.
0: Yeah, we have we have some we have a lot of that over here too, but it's for uh boxing. It's like a oh. it'll be a like sheriffs versus LAPD versus Air Force versus military and it's all like a big boxing tournament, it's pretty cool. Yeah.
1: yeah well, there were some fights during the game, so it was pretty interesting.
0: <laughs> awesome. Anyways, uh Alternate Take Listeners. Today on the show, we have the legendary 1980 Olympic champion Mike Ruzioni and captain of the team. How you doing, sir?
1: I'm good, Jay. How you doing?
0: I'm doing good. Can't complain. It's uh, what was it today Thursday? Today's a Thursday, I think. Yeah. yeah, beautiful Thursday, Southern California. I can't complain, man. Other than that, everything is good. How about yourself, sir?
1: Great, yeah. Weather here in Boston's a little rainy today, but it's supposed to have a nice weekend. Heading up to the Riders Cup, uh, Ryder Cup next week. So, looking forward to uh getting in a little golf.
0: Beautiful Boston, born and bred, right? I love it. Here you go. Actually, I want, I want to start with that, sir. Um, so usually with all my guests, I like to have them like uh, start from their upbringing, like where they grew up and, um, you know, how they got to where they got to. So uh, if you can do us a favor, tell us where you grew up, sir. Yeah.
1: Well, I grew up at about three houses from where I live right now, uh, in a little place called Winthrop Mass right off Logan Airport. It's a small little peninsula town, about 18, 19,000 people. Um, grew up in a three family house with all my cousins and aunts and uncles. It was a pretty great environment. Uh, as I told you, I live a few houses away. My son just bought the house directly behind me. Um, my daughter lives down the street. My mother-in-law's around the corner. My cousin lives next door. So it's, it's a great little community. All my family members live here. Probably about 90 people in my hometown are, are related in some way. Um, I went to public schools, went, to, went to, uh, through the winter program. I was a hockey football, baseball player in high school. Uh, football was my passion. And uh, I probably played more baseball than any sport I've ever played. Hockey was something you just kind of did in the wintertime. Uh, after high school, I went to Berwick Academy as a year as a p- postgraduate uh, to play football, hockey, and baseball with the hopes of going to University of New Hampshire. Uh, things didn't ter- turn out. The UNH hockey coach didn't think I was a Division I hockey player, so I ended up uh, at that point going to Merrimack College, which at the time was a Division II school. They weren't Division I. Uh, I-, I thought you know UNH was going to take me because of the football and and baseball coach really liked me, but the hockey coach didn't, didn't buy into me. So anyway, long story short, I was going to Merrimack college and, uh, in the summer, I didn't play hockey in the summer. I played baseball in the summer and got a phone call from a friend of mine. They needed somebody to play in a summer league game. A bunch of guys went to Cape Cod for the weekend. I said, you need a player I'll play. So I played in the game and it turns out the guy refereeing the game was a guy named Jack Parker, who at the time was the assistant coach at Boston university, um, Jack pulled me aside after the game, asked me where I was going to school. I told him I was going to Merrimack. He goes, well, we have a kid from Canada that decided not to come to Boston university. Would you like to come to BU? And I thought, well, BU is coming off back to back national championships and probably one of the elite programs and still one of the best programs in college hockey. So I, I said, uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll come to BU. He goes, why don't you go home and think about it? Talk to your family. So I went home, talked to my dad and, I, and my dad said, what do you think? I said, I can play there. I said, I'm, I'm going to go to BU. So I went the next morning met with coach Parker and uh, told him I was coming to be you. So I ended up at Boston university by the, the, just kind of a fluky kind of a situation. So I go to Boston university and Jack's the assistant coach. The head coach didn't know me from Adam. <laughs> uh, and I, I was center in the fourth line, you know, playing a little, we only played two or three games at that point. Uh, I had a goal and a, two assists, I think. And then uh, Leon Abbott, who was the head coach then got fired. And Jack Parker became the head coach. So he moved me from centering the fourth line to left wing on the second line. And I ended up leading our team and scoring goals my freshman year. Wow. So that's kind of my background in some degree of how I ended up even on the Olympic team, because if I had never gone to BU, I probably wouldn't have gone to the Olympic team uh, after graduating and playing two years out of college. But, you know, having played at Merrimack, I don't don't think uh, the Olympic team would have been something I would have even had an option to do. So, you know, my life kind of took a couple of turns here and there to get me uh, to Boston University and get me the, the visibility that you need to maybe at some point you know have an opportunity to play on an Olympic team. So that's kind of my life story in, in some degrees. I, I don't know if you know, I wrote a book that came out uh, last year called "The Making of a Miracle," uh, and it's kind of my life story. And, and those kind of stories are in there about how I ended up
0: where I ended up. Oh yeah, you're gonna have to send us a copy of that. I'd love to read that. That's awesome. Um, is it is it common for like you're you're Italian, correct, sir? Yes, yeah. Is it common for Italians to play like hockey over there in the East Coast? I I know you said baseball and football. I know that's much more common. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, hockey wasn't a big sport then um, in the in the United States, let alone you know Boston. I mean, hockey was a few communities, pockets of, of the city had hockey teams. But as you know, as I got a little older, more and more t- you know t- uh, programs, towns, especially when the Big Bad Bruins came in and Bobby Orr, uh, you know, I was already after you know kind of the Big Bad Bruins. I was in high school when they were coming about, so uh, I think that was a big part of the, the city of Boston and the sport growing. Uh, when the Bruins came in and they had success, a lot of towns were building hockey rinks left and right. And heck, now you see it, it's everywhere all, all over the country. You know, I, I work at Boston University, so I see the type of players that we get. Um, we've had players from Arizona, we've had players from Texas, and we've had a good run of players from California. So uh, years ago, you never saw that. The growth of hockey's incredible. Some of the best Americans are from California, Arizona, like I said, Florida, Texas, and still have Minnesota, Michigan, and Massachusetts. Um, but the growth of the sport is incredible. But when I was playing, it really wasn't a hockey a hockey sport when I was a kid. It, it has since, since become a big sport.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to elaborate on that a little bit too. The, because there are such small pockets of like hockey, um, at least, you know, extravaganza, you're talking like Boston and North yeah. South Dakota, Minnesota, all these places. Um, what were those college? Hockey rivalries like, because I know they touched upon it in the movie in the beginning, where like, oh, you right. went here, you went there. What were those really like behind the scenes? I mean, it's already well, a fighting sport, and there's no cameras back then, so I, I'd imagine it was intense.
1: Well, it's very intense in terms of the local, you know, Boston University, Boston College, Boston University, and Harvard, Northeastern, and BU. You know, that four schools they call the Beanpot schools are very competitive. Uh, you know, out west you get Minnesota and Wisconsin is very intense. North Dakota, Minnesota. Uh, Wisconsin again. Back in my days, those were intense rivalries, and still are today. So it's it, it's the college rivalries um, that exist still, uh, and then the rivalries we had was when once you got to the NCAA tournament, we had the rivalry with Minnesota. Um, you know, Herb Brooks coached the Minnesota team. We had the bench-clearing brawl against them my junior year. So there was a lot of you know intense rivalries, which you get in college sports in general. But nobody ever really knew the college hockey rivalries because it was a sport that was not as as um, you know, vocal or, or you didn't see it on television, like you do college basketball or, you know, the, the college football bowl games, but there are intense rivalries between the universities.
0: Yeah. Do you think that intensity is still there today or is it probably a little bit more?
1: Oh no, it's still there today. Um, and, and I think, you know, I don't think the BU Minnesota rivalry is as intense as it was then, but the BU BC rivalry is as intense as, as it always has been. And, and so are the Minnesota rivalries that they have at Wisconsin and, in North Dakota and schools like that. So there's still the regional
0: rivalries that
1: are really intense.
0: I love that. That's awesome. And do you think that was probably your first exposure to, uh, to her Brooks? Is that when he probably will start like taking, taking notice to you, maybe talking to your coach? Cause you know, like you mentioned earlier, your coach obviously saw something in you, that the other BU coaches did not see um, and took a chance. And did you think they started communicating at that point?
1: I don't know if coach Parker and coach Brooks ever really got along um, I'm sure, and I was told, and I don't know this for a fact that curb did talk, talk to college coaches about the players that he was thinking of picking to get a little more background on them. Um, but you know, I, I mean, at that point you still got to play, you know, I mean, Jack Parker could say all the greatest things in the world about me, but I go on the ice and I don't play well, who, you know, okay, Jack, thanks for the opinion, but I don't think he's a good player. So, um, I think maybe Herb probably did some research to get some of the backgrounds of some of the players, but I think. Herb's a pretty smart guy. And I think he probably knew a lot about us uh, without knowing without us knowing he knew that much about us.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. How was that? uh, How was that recruitment process when it first started? Um, When you're finding out that there's a there's an Olympic team getting formed and there's not going to be an NHL all star, nothing like that and they're picking kids from college. What was that uh, opportunity like for you? What, what was your mindset thinking that like you have a shot to even try out and all that stuff?
1: Well, my, my situation was very different. I I could have played in the 76 Olympic team and decided to stay in college that year. Um, I thought we had a chance to win the national championship and, you know, the Olympics weren't really something I really thought that much about. Um, then I graduated from college and then I went to, again, here's my story, but I went to camp with the New York Rangers and, and had a really good camp. And, uh, I remember after the camp was over, John Ferguson was a general manager and he said, Mike, we have too many players under contract making a lot of money and we're not going to sign any players, but we're really interested in keeping you in the system. So we're going to send you to Toledo, Ohio, uh, and you can play in Toledo. Now that was not an NHL contract. It was a, a basically two week tryout, two week contract. So every two weeks I got paid. I think my first year I made $3,500, uh, to play in Toledo, Ohio and stay an amateur. So I went to Toledo and, uh, Finished one point behind the leading scorer in the team. I was named named the rookie of the year in the league. And I was all set to sign with the New York Rangers. And John Ferguson got fired. Uh, Fred Sherrill became the general manager. And Fred Sherrill told my agent that uh, we're not signing any of John Ferguson's guys. So Mike's free to do what he wants to do. At that point, I figured, well, why don't I go to Toledo again, stay an amateur um, and try out for the 80 Olympic team? So I went back to Toledo with the hopes of getting invited to try out for the Olympic team. I did get invited to try out. I went to Colorado Springs. There were 68, 69 guys trying out. Um, We knew a handful of guys were already picked to make the team. I was not one of them. So I went to the tryout, had a good tryout, uh, and got selected to be one of the 26 players on the Olympic team. So the process for me was, was a lot different than some of the players because almost all the guys on the team were still in college or one year out of college Buzz Schneider and I were two years out of college. So uh, Buzz stayed in the amateur by playing actually in the same league that I played in, but he played for the Milwaukee admirals. So, you know, I think the process for me was let's just go play. Um, I knew I was a good player. And as it turned out, I, you know, the team I played at the festival, we won the gold medal. I was the captain of the team and I led our team in scoring at the festival. So, you know, the opportunity was there for me. It was now a case of did Herb see enough in me at the tryouts to select me. And he did. So there were 26 of us that made up the Olympic team. And throughout the course of the season, six players were going to get cut. um, And only 20 were going to go to Lake Placid. So it was still a process, still a tryout. Even though I was the captain of the team, that didn't change anything as far as her went, you know, his concerns. He was going to take the best 20 players. So, you know, if John Ferguson never got fired, I I would have probably signed with the Rangers. I don't know what kind of pro career I would have had, but I clearly wouldn't have been able to play on the 80 Olympic team.
0: Right. Yeah in that process of cutting players and all that, its it seems extremely brutal like it's i mean you're creating relationships with players and you see like uh how herb is you know depicted on the movie screen it's kind of like a almost like a bill belichick type of figure where like you got to be about business only was was that like kind of like his uh demeanor in your in your opinion was that like kind of how his coaching uh,
1: style herb was a lot friendlier in the movie um <laughs> Kurt russell they had a softer side of herb for whatever reason but No, that's how coaches coached in the seventies. They were, they were Bill Palachek type coaches. Uh, they were in your faith. They were maybe a little more friendly than Palachek, although I've I've only met Bill once, but I think, you know, I think the players, uh, in those years, that's how you, that's how you were coached. You you dealt with it. You can scream and yell at me all you want, but I, I only got to deal with you for a couple of hours. So Herb was demanding. Jack Parker was demanding. My high school football coach was demanding. Um, that's just the way it was then very different now. Um, I think players wouldn't respond uh, to that type of, of intense pressure that coaches put on you. But, you know, I, I always told people Herb was like your dad, you know, you love your dad, but sometimes you hate your dad because he makes you do things you don't want to do. And and that was Herb, but you know, we respected Herb, we trusted Herb and uh, and we dealt with what the challenges were.
0: Yeah. You know, I always feel coaching staff is uh, of like a depiction of what your family is supposed to be. Your cut, your head coach is your dad. He tells you what you don't want to hear and he's in your face, and it's all about production. I don't even care about your feelings. And your assistant coaches are like your uncles. Those are the ones you can go to with your small little problems, and they're the ones that, that take a little bit more interest. In, and they might even tell you the exact same thing your quote-unquote dad just told you, but they told you in a nicer way, and it's a more yeah. accepting way. And it's a little bit different. Um, but when you get both, I think it's important to have both. I think if you have the assistant coach mentality as your head coach, that's a terrible look because now they're not your friends. These are people you need to, you know, to win. And then if you have the head coach all the time, you might not have people that want to play all the time and right. you know, that aren't motivated or whatnot.
1: Yeah. And that's how important Craig Patrick was to our team as our assistant coach. He was it was good cop, bad cop. And Craig was the guy that we could go to and talk to. And Herb was the taskmaster, the disciplinarian, the, the one that drove us.
0: Yeah, definitely. So t- tell me about you guys' first games uh going into the Olympics. Um You guys are just getting formed. Was there chemistry there right away or was it? sort of like, they said, like the movie depicted where there's a little bit of beef in between where there's kind of a little bit of drama left from left behind from college and whatnot.
1: No, once the team was picked, we, we got along right from the beginning. Um, We had a bond and a friendship that we still have 41 years later. So, uh, you know, w- one thing about hockey players is you realize how important your teammates are at a young age and it's, it's the ultimate team sport. Um, And I think our team proved that with, we you know, we played four lines, we played seven, eight defensemen and, uh, you know, we we, we bonded quickly. Uh, going into the Olympic Games, it was just, you know, I hate to say it again, you talk about Bill Belichick, but it was one game at a time. Uh, we never thought about anything other than the game we were playing. Uh, the Soviets were favored to win the gold medal. Czechoslovakia was supposed to come in second. Sweden, Finland, Canada, West Germany were going to fight for the bronze. And we were anywhere seventh to 10th place as far as people predicted. So, you know, the mindset for us was go in and play each game. And You know, the Soviets were somebody that we never even talked about, was never discussed. Uh, Their name never came up during the Olympics until the day before we were playing them. So our concern was Sweden. And then after we tied Sweden, our concern was Czechoslovakia. And after we beat them, the next question was Norway, and then then Romania, then West Germany. And I think going in, Herb's goal was to get us to the medal round, Um, get to the medal round. And I only got two games to play and see what happens. And, And we got to the medal round. So that it really was one game at a time.
0: For for people that don't know too, like how big of an accomplishment it was, like what would you compare uh Russia's to, <clears throat> sorry, Russia's dominance as to a pro team or some sort of from another sport from their dominance? We're talking like 90s Yankees or like something like.
1: Yeah, I I I think it was uh I forget the sportscaster. Uh no, it was Jim McKay, I think the sportscaster. He said our victory against the Soviets would be like a group of Canadian college football players beating the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that's when the Steelers were in their uh, heyday with Lynn Swan and winning Super Bowls. So I thought that was a pretty good analogy, uh, college Canadian football players beating the Steelers because we were college hockey players playing against what people considered the best team in the world.
0: Wow. Yeah, honestly, that's a, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah. He's- when you guys were going through those rounds. Um, were there specific players that that in your head stood out or were, like from other teams, or were you guys just like weren't even in that mindset whatsoever? We're just here to, yeah. We,
1: we were never, we, we knew how good some of the individual players of other teams were. That's just scouting reports that you get before the game, you know. Especially, you know, Czechoslovakia had the Stasny brothers and uh, they were great players. So, and we knew, we knew once we got to the Soviet game, we knew him some of the great Soviet players, but. We, would, we were never worried about other teams. Um, that was a great thing about Herb as a coach. I know there's a couple of scenes in the movie where the, the, you, you hear Herb saying, play your game, play your game. That's what we were concerned about throughout the whole Olympic Games. We were never concerned about other teams and what they were doing. We needed to worry about ourselves and about what we needed to do. Continue to play the way we were playing. We were winning playing that way. Don't care about anybody else. Just do the things that we need to do in order to win. And and we stayed pretty true to that because the games went the the way we needed them to go. We were never trailing other than West Germany. We were trailing West Germany two to nothing um, and came back and beat them four to two. But every other game we were, you know, usually just down a goal or up a goal or down a goal. And Robbie McClanahan, one of my teammates came up with a statistic that he told me that in the third period of the Olympic games, we outscored our opponent 17 to three. Oh my God. That's an incredible number. Uh, and I never realized it, but when you look at the numbers, I mean, that just showed the conditioning, the speed, uh, our youth to a, to a, to a positive way uh, we wore teams down and, and played really well in the end. And that's a pretty good measure of your talent and your ability, but it's also a measure of, of your maturity for a young team to be that mature it was the youngest Olympic team we'd ever put on the ice. And I think if you took the average age of our Olympic hockey team, it probably would be the youngest team in college hockey today. So it was an incredible kind of statistic for me to see, but just showed that all the skating, all the hard work, everything we had done uh, paid off.
0: Yeah, I, I think and they mentioned it a little bit in the movie where they talk about how um, that's why they picked college players because you guys have, you guys are more moldable um, and you guys are more motivated and you guys are more willing to work as a team because you guys aren't like big stars in the sport yet as to where how, like all stars don't really, they don't have that motivation and they probably didn't really care. Um, and I think that was apparent. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, the youngest team ever and a Canadian college football team essentially beating, you know, the superstars of the league. And, uh, wow, that's – it's unbelievable. I mean, we're – when it came to the final game and you guys are finally getting there and um, <coughs> what was emotions like leading up to that game? Like talking to family, talking to people back home. Uh, yeah, you try,
1: you try to keep it, you know – uh, the way you normally would. You can't do anything differently. You can't get too high because then you run around and do something stupid. And, you, and if you're not ready, you're going to get you know, your, your ears hit pinned back. So I, I think as a team, we were excited. We were nervous. We were anxious. You're curious. I mean, you're always, any big game you go into, whether it's you know, high school hockey game or high school college baseball game or college hockey game, it, it's still a big game and, and you can't make it bigger than it is. I mean, I know it's the Olympic games and I, I never looked at it you know, I, I a matter of fact, after we won the gold medal, I think I felt just as excited as I did when I was 12 years old, when we won the little league town championship, you know, I think you can only, you only have so much emotion in your body. Now the scope of it is bigger. Um, but we never looked at it having the scope at it being any bigger than it's, it's a hockey game and we could go out and play really well. And it, it, if you, if you made it, Oh my God, it's the Olympic hockey game. Now you're in trouble because now you're going to start to put too much pressure on yourself. So I think, I, this was my approach anyways, just to go in and and be focused and be prepared and be ready to play. And, and, you know, you do that, the the excitement and the energy will take care of itself.
0: Yeah, I hear that comment like on from most athletes. And then just uh, from all the people we've interviewed on this podcast, we have musicians, comedians, uh, sports icons like yourself. And it's, that's, that message has always stayed consistent. And then there's always I would say like now it's just like a ticking time bomb to wait until it actually hits you like weeks after months after a year after until you realize the scope of what you said. And like now you're getting, uh, you know, TV interviews, movies and all these things. Do you, when do you think it really like settled in for you later on? Like, Holy, Holy shit. We, that's what we did. Like we did that. Was it, yeah,
1: it was a couple of weeks after the game or maybe a week or two after the games. And, and now I, I can say this 41 years later, it's still surprising. You know, the, the mail I get, the people that call me and talk to me, um, um, appearances I'm still making, you know, it still is something, it's not on the tip of people's tongue, but when you talk about sporting events and great moments in sports, ours clearly is still the best one. It's it's fun to talk about. It's fun to tell our story. Um, you know, we didn't go into Lake Placid expecting or thinking this thing was going to become what it became, uh, but it did at, at a time when it's, when you're funny, when you think about it, there were only three D, three TV stations then, ABC, NBC, and CBS. There was you know, no Twitter, no Facebook, no, you know, Instagram, no, all this other crazy world that we're living in today. So uh, I I wonder what that moment would be like today with the social media Uh, would be probably pretty crazy. But, you know, our intentions were nothing other than going to play a hockey game and winning, winning whatever medal we could win. And then after the games, we realized that it was a moment that touched the lives of, of a lot of people in this country for a lot of different reasons. For some, it was political. For some, it was just showing the world this still is a great country. And, you know, you think about, you know, you weren't born then, but, you know, do the research and what was happening in this country in 1980, um, similar to what we're going through today, but, you know, maybe not as bad with the COVID, but the political crisis, the, uh, you know, the, the Afghanistan situation, the, you know, an unemployment. I mean, so many things that were going on in 1980, the hostages had been taken, the threat of a cold war and uh, gas lines and, you uh, you know, people looking for interest rates were ridiculous and people looking for something to feel good about. And it turned out to be us. Uh, and I, I was telling someone the other day, I think we need a 1980 again. We need one of those moments in this country to kind of rally the troops and get people realizing what makes this country such a great country and the great things and the opportunities that we have. Our, our team kind of proved that and people related to it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, they, they do that in, in the movie, they like the beginning of the movie, they're showing all the, the events of the world that are going on. You can hear Jimmy's <laughs> voice in the background and all these things. And I think that is what made it such a big impact. And um I wanted to focus a little bit more on you too, on on how much they emphasize and how much your your role as a captain was. I mean, recently uh, Derek Jeter just retired, and that that is his, his title. He's the captain. That's that's what everyone brings up. Is that it wasn't that he wasn't just a ball player that he took on the other responsibilities and he did it behind closed doors and he never beat his chest about it. And I think that's what respect everyone respected Derek Jeter about, but that's the same thing everyone would say about you as well. Um, what was it like earning that title as a captain? And what were the roles behind the scenes that like you had to take on?
1: Well, I might, I might surprise you with my answer, but I didn't think it was a big deal. Um, I, I've always said I was a captain amongst captains. Uh, Jack O'Callaghan was a two-time captain at Boston university. Billy Baker was captain at Minnesota. Um, Mark Johnson and Bobby Suda were captains at Wisconsin. Kenny Morrow and Mark Wells were captains at Bowling Green. Uh, Pavlich and Harrington were captains at Minnesota Duluth. Um, every one of my teammates was probably, if I wanted to do the research, captains of their high school teams. So, um, to me, it was it was a great honor, but it wasn't a big deal. Uh, to me, it was just be myself, uh, be, be a good teammate, be a good friend. You know, be somebody that my teammates could trust. Um, don't change. Sometimes people become captains, and they become. Oh, geez, I'm the captain. You know, look at me. Uh, to me, it was just be myself, and uh, I've always respected my teammates. I think they've respected me on the ice as well as off the ice. Um, but you know, like I said, that that was a team of leaders. Uh, it was nice to be the captain, but it wasn't like you know, hey, this is how we do things around here. To me, it was just you know, be, be somebody to support my team.
0: Right, <clears throat> and you know, and, and it it does it does show how well you did that. It's almost fitting that you scored the last goal because I mean, uh, I know it's kind of like wishy-washy and kind of coincidental, but I mean, it is fitting. I mean, you were the captain of the team and, uh, and to secure that last goal, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's funny how they even depict the scene in the movie. It literally looks identical to when you actually scored the goal, the same movements, everything like how Does that freak you out a little bit when you're watching the movie? Like this, the scenes were unbelievable To, to this day. If you watch that movie, the scenes are unbelievable. I don't know how they did all that, how they got the crowd, the hockey players they got for it. It's unbelievable. Well, in the movie, you know, one
1: of the things I heard about, I mean, I had nothing to do with the movie. I went and just watched it. Um, But I know talking to the actors, uh, you know, the, the kid who played me, we spent a lot of time talking on the phone. And one of the things they needed to make happen, and they did, and they told me this later, was every goal had to go in exactly where it went in during the, during the actual game. And they spent – uh you know, hours upon hours, making sure the shot was taken at the right angle, the right point, the right place. And the thing was they hired hockey players to teach to act rather than actors to teach to play hockey. So all these guys had played college hockey or minor league hockey. So they knew the game. So uh, they did spend a lot of hours doing, you know, re- re- retaking scenes. I guess somebody told me Buzzy Schneider's goal. And interestingly, his son played him in the movie. Uh <laughs> Buzzy's goal against the Soviets was a slap shot just inside the blue line. I believe it beat Tradiac and his son couldn't hit the net and kept shooting it high and wide and high. And they kept retaking it, retaking it. And finally they got the scene down. Right. And the same thing in my goal, Patrick Dempsey, who played me, uh, and not the the actor Patrick Dempsey, local kid from Boston. um, They said he got his shot down in almost three or four takes. So uh, that's what I thought made the movie exciting because they did make sure everything was exactly the way it happened because people remember it and you can't change it. You can't, you know, have something different happening in the movie that people say, no, that, that didn't happen. This is how, you know, this is where that goal was scored or this is how that play was made. So again, I, I thought they did a great job in the movie of that.
0: Yeah. Even like the, uh, is it the Mike Johnson goal? Like right before the period ends, it looks like identical. You're like, Oh my God, this is insane. And I think when they put in like the Al Michaels voice and everything, it was just, it was just surreal. What was it like? Uh what was your family's reaction to the movie? Did they like how did your life change after the movie? Did it change much or were you like holy? No,
1: I think I think just more people know who I am and, and know who my teammates are and know our story because of the movie. Um you know it, it it was it was great. It's 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 an honor to have you know something in your life happen to become a movie. I, I have grandkids right now and they haven't seen the movie yet, and I'm dreading the day they figure it out because I'll have to watch it. Uh <laughs> but you know, I think you know for us as a team it was nice that that people uh, are remembering our team in a way that you know 30 years from now somebody's going to watch that movie uh, and get an understanding of what took place
0: yeah it's it's sort of like you know like rudy doesn't watch rudy you know what i mean <laughs> right. i right. I, 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 t- I totally get that so um after your olympic career what was next for mike ruzioni um going forward i was going to coach and teach um,
1: i was a phys ed major at boston university I, my goal was to, to coach i was you know coach football hockey or baseball and um, then, then all of a sudden this Olympic game came about and my life took a different turn. Uh, I was getting phone calls to go here and go there and do this and do that. So, uh, even 41 years later, I still do a lot of corporate outings and a lot of speaking. Uh, I do work at Boston university. I've been there 28 years and kind of a, an ambassador role for the university. But right after the Olympics, I got into broadcasting. I, I, I did New York Ranger games. I did New Jersey devil games. I did NHL hockey games, I uh, I did Olympic Games as a broadcaster. I worked L.A. Um, my first Olympic Games was Los Angeles. Then I worked, you know, four or five Olympic, Winter Olympic Games and, and then got out of broadcasting when my kids started to get a little older and took the job at Boston University. So, uh, basically, that's what I do. I I still do a lot of corporate speaking. I uh, like to play a little golf here and there. And uh, six grandkids, kind of spend a little time playing with them.
0: Wow, that's beautiful. It's a good, blue, like a simple blue-collar life. It's actually... I, I, we had our last guest on. He's a, he's a really big comedian. And uh he talks about that. He talks about how like um you're in the spotlight, you do this and, and it's it's phenomenal. But like it's almost it's just as essential to get out of it and to live like a very normal life. Otherwise, I mean, you yeah, But you
1: know, if, if we lost, I'd still be living in the same town. I'd be married to the same girl. My wife and I've been married, I think, 38 years. We dated for 10 or 11 years. She grew up four houses from me. Uh, My friends are my friends. They've always been there with me for forever. My cousins, like I said, we're all very close, tight knit. And if we lost, I'd be still doing the same things. I obviously wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't be (laughs) probably have some of the money that I've been able to make over the years, but I'd be happy.
0: That's beautiful. Well, Mike Ruzian, if you had any advice to a a young kid trying to make it out there in the ring, what what would you give to him? You know what?
1: Just have fun and work hard. Uh, You don't know what's going to happen. Be a good person, be a good teammate, be a good friend. Uh, be a good neighbor, be a good brother, or sister. You know, I, I said that with my own kids, you know, my my my, my kids are really good athletes. And I always told them what you do is what you do. What I did is what I did. I, I don't expect you to win an Olympic gold medal, but I expect you to be a good person. And, you know, if if you work hard, good things usually happen to people that work hard and uh, keep, keep striving to be the best that you can be. But more importantly, people you know, I I don't want people to look at me as a gold medalist. I want them to look at me as a nice person, as somebody that they respect. And you carry that with you in your life. I think you'll, you'll win more than you lose.
0: I love that. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Mr. Rosioni. I promised 30 minutes and, um, it was a great honor. I mean, the movie changed my life as a kid. I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, but, uh, you know, you, you've done a lot more and I I know you probably, I know you've heard us a thousand times, but yeah, you've done a lot more for people's lives than you, than you think. And, uh, it was it was a great honor talking to you, sir.
1: Thank you very much, and good luck uh, with your future.
0: Yes, sir. I appreciate it. I'm gonna. I got to get one of those books from you, by the way. Definitely.
1: It, it's called The Making of a Miracle.
0: Making of a miracle. We'll get it today.
1: All right, Danny. Take care. All
0: right, all right, sir. Likewise. Take care. Bye. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen, our interview with the captain of the 1980 USA Olympic hockey team, Mike Ruzioni. Rizzo, as some of you might know from the movie. Wow. It, it was an amazing experience, man. Th- uh, thank you a lot for coming on the show, Mr. Ruzioni. It, it was it was a blast, and it was my pleasure. Um, like I said before, Mike does have a book for you guys to buy of the whole events. It's, it's awesome. It's called The Making of a Miracle. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, at Emma Ruzioni And thank you to everyone who, who helped get this interview set up. I, I really did have a blast, and, you know... Thank you to Mr. Ruzioni for, for what you did, man. I, I really couldn't, I couldn't state that enough. Like I said, you changed, you cha- you guys changed America. The whole team did, you know, and uh, I know it sounds crazy because it came from a sports team, but it did, you know, and, um, you know, who knows? Maybe we have another miracle event like that soon. You know. And in the meantime, uh, we'll just be spitting out episodes to you guys. So uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you guys later. Peace.